Hi, this is Aaliyah Gaskins of Agenda Alexandria. And I'm Michael Pope. The long, strange history of political mapmaking in Virginia dates all the way back to the 1700s. That was when Virginia Governor Patrick Henry wanted to draw the very first congressional districts in a way specifically designed to deny a seat in Congress to his arch enemy, James Madison. That plan failed, and Madison was elected to Congress anyway. A few years later, the term gerrymander was coined when Massachusetts Governor Elbridge Gerry proposed a political map with districts designed to harm his rivals, the Federalists. That map included a district that reminded critics of a salamander. That's Jerry plus salamander equals gerrymander. Now, over the years, gerrymandering has taken on many forms, including racial gerrymanders intended to pack large numbers of black voters tightly into a small number of districts in order to dilute their influence elsewhere. And now, flash forward, it's 2020, and your ballot this fall has an amendment that will change how districts are drawn for the General Assembly and for Congress. If it fails to pass, Democrats in the General Assembly will be in charge of drawing maps next year. But 10 years from now, Republicans could be in control of map making once again. If the amendment passes, a new redistricting commission will be created. It will have eight citizen members and eight elected officials. The citizen members will be selected by a panel of retired judges from a list of candidates submitted by Republican leaders and Democratic leaders in the House of Delegates and the State Senate. So yes, it's true there will be citizen members, but they will also be political appointees. The eight elected officials will include two Democrats from the House, two Democrats from the Senate, two Republicans from the House, and two Republicans from the Senate. So yes, Again, it's true that the amendment will take the power to draw maps out of the hands of the General Assembly, but half of the commission will be made up of members of the General Assembly. Critics of the amendment worry that it does not require racial diversity on the commission, a problem considering Virginia's recent history with racial gerrymandering. Supporters of the newly created commission say it's an improvement over the old way of doing things where the party in power screws political opponents just like Elbridge Jerry did more than 200 years ago. Amendment 1 is on the ballot and on, on the, the agenda. agenda. This program of Agenda Alexandria is made possible by the generous contributions of Homes of Alexandria, Simpson Development, and the Zebra Newspaper. Additional funding is made possible by our generous sustaining contributors and members like you. Hi, and welcome to On the Agenda, the podcast version of Agenda Alexandria. I am Aaliyah Gaskins. And I'm Michael Pope. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about Amendment 1. That's the controversial redistricting amendment that creates this new 16-member commission to draw political boundaries for the House of Delegates, the State Senate, and Congress. And can I just tell you how excited I am that we are talking about this? Literally earlier today, I was driving to my doctor's appointment. And there were a number of signs in the median, and one said, end gerrymandering, vote yes on Amendment 1. And then the other sign, literally directly behind it, said, end partisan gerrymandering, vote no on Amendment 1. I love it. I'm so confused. <laughs> um, was there a traffic accident, Aaliyah? Um, I might have almost caused one, because I was trying to read the small print. Who paid for the signs? <laughs> I will say I'm glad that we have the best people to explain this to us and really help us see what the amendment does, what it doesn't do. 
So joining us today, we have the executive director of the group that spearheaded the amendment, Mr. Brian Cannon. Brian, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Well, Leah, I'm so glad we didn't cause a traffic accident. Glad to be here. Are you saying those were your signs? <laughs> uh, I think you, I think I think it's the vote yes one say in partisan gerrymandering. The vote no one say that. But the idea is the same. Yeah, we were, we were responsible for half of those signs. Well, the other half of the signs is our other guest. He's a senior advisor for Fair Districts Virginia. Trevor Sutherland, thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Great. So let's start with Aaliyah's anecdote here about the signs. It seems like everybody is against gerrymandering, right? The people who want the amendment are against gerrymandering. The people who don't want the amendment are against gerrymandering. Brian Cannon, walk us through as briefly as you can what this amendment does and why, from your perspective, why they should vote for it. Sure. So I think the amendment does four main things. It ends partisan gerrymandering. The way it's structured, no one party can get over on the other. So it ends partisan gerrymandering. It makes racial gerrymandering illegal under the Virginia Constitution for the first time in, in our, constitu- our state constitution's history. That's redundant per se with the federal laws right now, but I think important for Virginia to, to do as well. It adds open data, open meetings, you know, basically destroys that proverbial smoky back room. And it puts citizens at the table with an equal say to legislators for the first time ever. So those are the basic structures of what it does. It creates a balanced bipartisan commission, uh, half legislators, half citizens, evenly chosen you know, by party. And then the, you got the transparency and the anti-racial gerrymandering stuff in there. There's been lots that's been said on the floor of the House and the Senate on this. One piece of the debate that I found interesting was Delegate Jay Leftwich is a Republican who said that when he voted for this the first time, when Republicans were in power, he got pushback because here Republicans, they've got all the power, they can do the redistricting. And here you are, a Republican who is willingly giving away your power to redistrict. This is what he said on the House floor about reaction to that vote in favor of the amendment. When I returned to my district, I was chastised by my supporters. Jay, we raised money for you. We knocked doors for you. We put up signs. We did all these things for you. How can you just turn that power over to someone else? And these are not my constituents. These are my supporters. Let's be clear about that. I looked my supporters in the eye and I said, it's the right thing to do. Trevor Sutherland, why is Delegate Leftwich wrong? Why is this not the right thing to do? Well, it's not the right thing to do because one of the things it's going to do is reduce the number of black and brown voices that are at the table for redistricting. So we're going to go from a process that involves 140 members that allows for people from all sides of the Commonwealth to have a stake in the process. And we're going to go to a commission of eight politicians and eight of their friends with no restrictions on where they're from or who they represent, what race they are, what gender they are. Under Amendment 1, you could have 16 white men from Arlington be this commission. That is allowed. And so, you know, that's just that's just not right. We need to make sure that in a state as diverse as Virginia, that that diversity is represented. 
I think this is the part of the debate that I find particularly interesting. You know, if we think about what's happening in our country from, you know, this summer with the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the conversations that we are having as a nation about race, you have an amendment where members of the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus have complained that it doesn't require diverse representation. You have, I think, the Virginia NAACP coming out against the amendment. I mean, if this is passed, what are the steps, if any, to ensure that there could be diverse representation or that the members of the 16 represent black and brown communities? The amendment very specifically adds protections against racial gerrymandering. And these are all new words in our state constitution. Every electoral district shall be drawn in accordance with the requirements of federal and state laws that address racial and ethnic fairness, including, and then it lists the VRA and the Equal Protection Clause. Um, and then it says, a separate distinct sentence says, districts shall provide, where practicable, opportunities for racial and ethnic communities to elect the candidates of their choice. That's historic. That is the, those are the two, that one sentence um, has the two kind of guardrails against packing and cracking in it. So the amendment itself does that. But what rings hollow to me is the fact that the um, the opponents of this amendment, so particularly in the legislature, and they're on Trevor's board, uh, a Delegate Price and Delegate Simon, have opposed what's called enabling legislation that would have addressed exactly what they're complaining about. Because I don't want a bunch of white guys from from Richmond or something being the only people on this commission. That would be bad. We should fix that. And yet, Delegate Price and Delegate Simon sunk it in a conference committee on March 7th of this year. And now they're talking about not allowing it because the Senate put that language back in their uh, in their special session budget. So it really begs the question of how sincere they are on this, or are they just trying to play politics? And I think the only conclusion we can have is when we're giving, we're saying this is exactly what they negotiated. In fact, Delegate Price and Delegate and, and Senator Barker worked on this during session. You know, this is <laughs> it's a little preposterous that they wouldn't just pass it. I know Trevor wants to respond, and Trevor will will give you an opportunity to do that. But I want to return to the language of the chairman of the Legislative Black Caucus, Delegate Lamont Bagby, who raised alarm bells the very first time this was brought up last year when the final language emerged from the secret closed door conference committee that was not open to the public and not open to the press. There were no African-Americans on that conference committee. It was an all-white conference committee, which concerned him, and he was concerned about any explicit guarantees that members of the commission would be diverse. And this is what he said on the House floor. It may not have been thought about, but there were no African-Americans in conference on this particular resolution. So we have great concerns about having African-American representation in the room for redistricting, and this doesn't guarantee that. Trevor Sutherland, is it possible that this commission will have African-Americans on it and that people who raise this concern are overstating the case? So I think here's where we have some of the differences between the sides. Yes, this commission could have uh, black people on it. It could have brown people on it. It could have women. It could have somebody from Southwest Virginia. It could have somebody from truly Southwest Virginia. The problem is I said the word could a lot. We don't know. And in today's society, when we're talking about something as important as our districts in the House of Delegates, the state Senate, and the United States Congress, How could we only say 
maybe we could have black people on this commission. And here's the thing. When it comes to the racial protections in this amendment, the key words are where practicable, because that's a phrase that is often used in legislative language to get around things. The protections in this amendment include the Voting Rights Act, which has been gutted by the courts. It includes the 14th Amendment, which was around during Jim Crow and didn't stop Jim Crow. So those protections that are there are not true protections. That's what people like Lamont Bagby are telling us, and that's what we need to look at. And when you talk about potential fixes to it, why? Before we've even passed a constitutional amendment, are we having to talk about so many potential fixes? And why do we need legislation, a weaker form, to fix a constitutional amendment? There's just so many things wrong with it. So, Trevor, do you support the budget language that would add in all those protections that you're complaining about, or do you oppose it? It doesn't matter. It, no, no, it does matter, because it only goes... No, it doesn't matter, because this is a constitutional amendment, and why does a constitutional amendment need to be fixed like this? It should have been right in the first place. If we're going to put it in our Constitution and make it hard to change, it ought to be right. What amendment has ever been perfect? What amendment has ever been perfect? I don't know. They're never perfect. So you're okay with passing a completely imperfect amendment that does absolutely nothing to protect black and brown communities in Virginia. That's what you support. That's not true at all. That is what you're supporting right now. No, that is not true. Let me jump in here because this concern about the lack of required diversity has been something that has been a concern for many people. In fact, when members of the General Assembly were debating this on the House floor, Delegate Danica Rome made this statement on the House floor. Cis straight white men had a supermajority in the House of Delegates for 399 years until 2018 and still have a majority to this day. We need to make a real effort to support diversity and inclusivity. Brian Cannon, what would you say to Delegate Rome about whether or not the amendment is a real effort to support diversity and inclusivity? It it definitely is, Michael. So there's two ways to go about getting the outcome you want from law. One is create structures in the law that drive the outcome you're looking for. And the other is to write it down into the code or into the constitution. I think both are important and we should be doing both. But structurally, and this is I think the point that that Trevor's not telling you here, is that structurally, Eileen Fillercorn, as Speaker of the House, and Louise Lucas, as Senate Pro Tem, will be directly and indirectly appointing half of the commission. So the idea that they won't appoint diverse group of folks is just preposterous. That's a structural feature of this amendment that guarantees that. Now, that being said, I don't actually think uh, Senator Lucas and Speaker Filler Corner are necessarily going to appoint somewhere from far southwest Virginia. I do trust the Republicans to cover that part of it, too. But as far as the idea of this commission looking like Virginia, I have every confidence that even without the enabling legislation in the budget, which they should pass, it will do that. So here's the problem with that. The amendment, and I'm, I'm looking at it right now, it does not say anything about Eileen Fillercorn and Louise Lucas. It says the president pro tempore of the Senate of Virginia, and it says the Speaker of the House of Delegates. Now, I love Louise and I love Eileen. I do not think they are going to be in those positions 
forever. So who is going to be in those positions in 10, 20, 30, 40 years? I don't know. I do know that if you went back into the past 30 or 40 years and told the Democratic majorities of the past that it was going to be a Jewish woman as the speaker and an African-American woman as the president pro temp, they would laugh at you because that was not the leadership of the Democratic Party of the past. I have full confidence in Louise and Eileen. I do not know what the Democratic Party of the future represents, and I don't see why, again, we are staking the entire hope for diversity in a constitutional amendment on the Democratic Party. Well, we're not. It's the amendment says majority and minority parties basically get those. So the top two parties in Virginia get those uh, appointments. Uh, you know, I, I can't think of a way in which, you know, we're 30 plus percent uh, black and brown in Virginia. I can't imagine one of the major parties doesn't appoint that segment of our population. But again, we could put it into the budget right now and require it extra. We could we could have put it into the code of Virginia in March, but Delegate Price and Delegate Simon decided to play politics with this thing. There's even more point of confusion in this because, you know, Brian just referenced the majority and the minority party. It actually says the president pro temporary of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Delegates. So those are the two people that are given appointment power. When it comes to the minority party, it actually references, quote, the leader of that political party. So from my reading of it, that could either be at the current time, Rich Anderson, Rana Romney McDaniel, or Donald Trump. But it doesn't actually talk about the leader of the Senate or the minority leader of the House. So that's another point of confusion in this amendment. I'm not sure who appoints the minority members. Yeah, this is something I... As I listen to what you're both talking about and what you're saying about to what extent can we structure this amendment so that it guarantees some of the protections we want to see, but then on the same hand, what it's happening in terms of the things that we have to hope for and may not know and these uncertainties. And it brings me to another point of contention about this amendment, which is what happens if the appointed commission does not agree on how the map should be drawn. And my read of this is that it would then go to the Virginia Supreme Court. And there's been a lot of concern um, in the things that I've read that can we put our faith and hope in the Supreme Court to then draw these lines in a way that is beneficial to communities, especially minorities communities. On that issue, Aaliyah, on the House floor, this was an issue that was raised by Delegate Joe Lindsay, who is the chairman of the Privileges and Election Committee that is overseeing all of this. And this is what he had to say on the House floor about that issue. Well, I'll just tell you, Mr. Speaker, if we're taking the, the governor out of the process, I certainly don't want the Supreme Court in it because I've seen some of their rulings and they don't seem to be in keeping with what I would expect as, as representative of the whole of the Commonwealth. Brian Cannon, this is an issue that has been raised as a weapon to beat up on your cause, which is that if this goes to this the Republican-leaning, conservative Virginia Supreme Court, they're just going to draw a bunch of apps that help Republicans. What's your reaction to that? I, I think that's that's complete bunk. And and here's how you, here's how you know it is. First of all, Joe Lindsay's never put in any judicial appointment reform bill in Virginia. Right, you've never seen any of that. Second of all, the leading proponent of that theory in the House of Delegates is Delegate Mark Levine up y'all's way in, in Northern Virginia. Delegate Levine signed on to three other 
constitutional amendments before his party was in the majority. He signed on to three other amendments, and they all explicitly went to the state Supreme Court. So the real question for reformers is there's really two options here. There's always a possibility that any commission, no matter how well-structured, fails. And you should have a backstop for that. The question is, where does it go? Personally, if it were up to me, I'd want like a group of like uh, AP government high school teachers to do it, but that's not a viable option. It's either going, the two viable options is it goes to the courts or it goes back to the legislature. And we know what legislatures do when they draw maps. They gerrymander. Courts, however, have never gerrymandered. There's not a single example I can think of in the history of this country of where a court has gerrymandered. And so what's what's interesting is the demagogy in the state Supreme Court, even if you think they're a bunch of party hacks, and I don't think they are, uh, they kept Kanye West off the ballot, for goodness sakes, and they've upheld the removal of the Confederate monuments in here that Mayor Stoney did in Richmond. So there's a long list of things that might not wash on a partisan attack like that. But even if you think they are all hacks, uh, imagine a scenario where this amendment fails, the Democrats draw maps next year, we could pretend they're going to draw them fairly. I don't think that's true. But guess who sues? The Republicans. And because the federal courthouse is closed to partisan gerrymandering claims, they'll file a claim under the Free and Fair Elections Clause in our Constitution, just like the Democrats did in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. And guess where that lawsuit ends up? The state Supreme Court. One of the issues about this amendment that is noteworthy is that it has bipartisan support. It was an agreement, an arrangement that was cut with the support of Republicans and Democrats, and Republicans took a hit for doing this. You heard Delegate Leftwich talking about this earlier. Uh, And then one of the Republicans that perhaps took one of the biggest hits was Delegate Chris Jones, who was not reelected. But before he lost reelection, he was on the House floor talking about his support of the amendment. And this is what he said. Do I like The fact that we would have a commission do this work? No, I think it should reside with the body. But this is the best that I have seen during my tenure of an attempt to try to take as much of the politics out of it. Trevor Sutherland, why is delegate, former delegate Jones wrong? Why is this not taking the politics out of it? Well, it's because former Delegate Jones was being disingenuous, uh, similar to the way he was during the Bethune Hill case last year, where the court saw through him and, and knew he was being disingenuous. This amendment, to pass in 2019, it needed two things. It needed the support of Senate Democrats, and it needed the support of House Republicans. It got the support of Senate Democrats by keeping legislators involved in the process, and it got the support of House Republicans by sending it to the Supreme Court if there was a deadlock. That's the way it got the support in 2019 that it needed to pass. So when Delegate Jones and others stand up and speak about it, they're just being disingenuous. Well, Trevor, the original bill the Republicans introduced that Chris Jones and Mark Cole introduced didn't have the deadlock commission going to the court. It had it going back to the legislature because they were in charge of the legislature. That was their original HJ 615. This isn't a matter of speculation. There are receipts for this. The original Barker bill had it going to the courts, and George Barker's Senate bill, uh, SJ-306 from 2019, was like 90% of what what we have before us now on the ballot, including the court part. That was put in by Democrats. Yeah, that, that was. That was George Barker, and it was kept in there. The House Democrats wanted it out. It was kept in there by the House Republicans. My bigger problem with it going to the Supreme Court is that there's a complete lack of transparency in that process. 
what the amendment says is the district shall be established by the Supreme Court of Virginia. There's no outline about how that should be established or how they should do it. This amendment is very weak on transparency in the first place when it comes to the actual commission. There's literally no transparency when it comes to the Supreme Court, and that's what bothers me about that process. Funny, they killed that was part of the enabling legislation that Delegate Price and Delegate uh, Simon killed on March 7th. I mean, this is you can't have your cake and eat it, too, here, Trevor. Like, right. your your board members killed the thing that would fix 90% of what you've complained about in this, in this podcast. You know, I would disagree with that because what they asked for was both a process for if the amendment passes and if the amendment fails and some folks on your side refuse to allow for the possibility that the amendment would fail. So if you're not going to leave a process open for what happens should it fail, then why should we prop up the bad constitutional amendment that's poorly written that needs all of this help to become somewhat acceptable? As somebody who's learning about this issue as well, I feel like I'm sitting over here furiously taking notes trying to figure out you know, which which message resonates with me and where where the the truth is that's going to help inform my vote. So I, I guess my question for you, Trevor, is let's say Amendment 1 does not pass and we are back to the drawing board. What are you putting forth that's better than this? Or what's the process for creating, I think earlier you said something that's perfect or at least close to perfect rather than something that needs tweaked with? Yeah. Well, the really good news here is that there's no return to the status quo. Uh, You know, when people think about the possibility of the amendment failing, one of the sort of scare tactics used is we're going to go back to the status quo. It's going to be 2011 and 2001 and everything all over again. But that's not a possibility because last year on a straight party line vote, the General Assembly passed HB 1255, which made gerrymandering illegal. So if it goes back to the legislature to redistrict, they now have some guardrails on what they can and cannot do. So that's good. They could also put in place a, by legislation, a commission, a completely independent commission that would stand alone for 2021. Uh, Democrats have the votes in the General Assembly to make that happen if they have support from the Senate Democrats to do it. You could make redistricting totally happen independently outside of the legislature. And then you would start working on a new constitutional amendment that would include protections for black and brown communities that would make it truly independent redistricting and work on passing that through two times and then getting it to a referendum so that we can have a constitutional amendment with acceptable language in it for the time 2031 comes around. So 2031 seems kind of a a long way away. I'm curious, Brian, why is that not the right approach? Well, so, Ali, I I don't think there's any daylight in what Trevor's saying he wants for 2031 and what I want for 2031. I think that's agreement. The question is, how are we going to do it now? And if you amend the Constitution, you get this bipartisan commission with transparency and racial minority protections. If you don't amend the Constitution, then we do go back to the status quo, because right now the current Constitution says the legislature shall establish districts in years ending in one. So we're coming up on that. That's going to happen. And the folks who claim, and and I don't think I've heard Trevor say this, so kudos to him, but who claim the Supreme Court's a bunch of hacks um, and and just Republican hacks, the folks who who claim that, the, the question I have for them is, 
HB 1255, which is a good bill, and there were other versions of it, by the way, but basically verbatim versions that were passed in bipartisan majorities. They, the, I think the Republicans just don't like Delegate Price. But to enforce that, like say say we don't have the amendment, say only we have 1255, which is good, but not easily enforced against the legislature. If it says you know no maps can unduly favor one party or another, that's great. What does unduly mean? I don't fully know. And you would, and the Republicans are definitely going to sue over that. And if you think the Republican Supreme, if you think the Supreme Court's a bunch of Republican hacks, I don't know how they can expect that to be enforced. Not alone, let alone the fact that the General Assembly could just repeal HB twelve fifty five. A, a, a current legislature can't bind a future legislature. It's just not how how the system works. Which is why you've got to put it into the Constitution itself. On the issue of House Bill 1255, that was introduced by Delegate Sia Price, who was successful in getting that bill passed. But what she was not successful in is killing this amendment, which she was against rather steadfastly. In fact, when she was on the House floor, this is what she said about the amendment. So this to me isn't about whether or not individual members of this body have black friends or do nice things for black people. This is about a resolution that we are about to pass to change our Commonwealth's constitution. And I just don't think that racial fairness, language minority fairness, and cultural fairness should be parenthetical and optional. And so I am voting no. So the part of this that is confusing for voters is that this is ground that both sides are claiming, right? Even in our podcast, um, both of you are saying, vote for the amendment because it secures minority representation, vote against the amendment because it doesn't secure minority representation. And I think this is probably confusing to voters. Brian Cannon, explain, like sort of pin this down. Why is the amendment better for securing minority rights than not voting for the amendment? And Trevor, same question to you. Right now, we don't have any protections in our state constitution for racial and ethnic minorities. So, you know, it, whether you think we could improve on the language, sure. I, 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 I'm not. I'm not saying this is a perfect amendment. I don't think one exists, and the Democrats certainly haven't put forward one either that was anywhere near perfect. And the only thing that I thought was better, they killed in rules committee in a voice vote this January. So, you know, you see how serious they take alternative forms of of reform. But in this case, this would put something in there. I think the where practicable language really trips people up because it does sound parenthetical or, or optional. It's not. It's used with just a sentence above in the Constitution where it would go regarding equal population. We adhere to equal population. So the two problems you have in racial gerrymandering are cracking and packing. The Voting Rights Act itself stops the, the cracking, right, where they would just take a compact and cohesive minority community, they would carve them up seven ways to Sunday, they would dilute their influence that way. That was like the, you know, 60, 70 years ago way of doing business. Then the Voting Rights Act came on and says, if you have a compact and cohesive minority community, you got to keep them together so they, they can elect a candidate of their choice. So that went along just fine for, a, you know, a couple decades-ish. And then we get into the 90s and the Republicans in the South start teaming up in the, in the state legislatures in the South start teaming up with black caucus members and say, hey, look, we know we've got to give you black districts, but let's let's really give you black districts. And so they're packing. And that's the problem we've had this past year. And by the way, Trevor Sullivan's right that the, the 14th Amendment was around during Jim Crow, but the 14th Amendment also struck down two racial gerrymanders in Virginia's uh, congressional, one in congressional and one in House of Delegates this 
decades. So it does work. And, and even Justice Clarence Thomas is voting on the side of the of the of the of unracially gerrymandering these districts. So that's good. The where practicable language stops the packing because what happens with packing is you see, and this was the like the third congressional district from 2012, uh, where it it goes from Richmond and Petersburg, jumps up and down the the James River to find every black person they could along there and lumps them into one district. Well, nobody would say that's practicable. That violates all the traditional redistricting criteria. So you've got a Gingles test, you've got a Shaw Shaw v. Reno kind of test. That's the where practical language. It is pretty well worn. And I understand why people think it's a suggestion, but it is very much not a suggestion. It's a guardrail against packing. But but let me step back because all this is really complicated, Michael. So I think what's helpful is we could listen to the experts. And all the redistricting reform experts in the country, most of whom are liberal voting rights attorneys, support this. And including Justin Levitt, who's a former Obama DOJ voting rights lead attorney, uh, who's a professor at Loyola Law School. and He wrote a great op-ed about this in the Virginia pilot um, last December, I think. And then you've got the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, which certainly you know comes with its own credibility, talking about the minority protections as well and, and supporting this. So I just don't see it. So- the issue here is that you're talking about a couple of different things. In your question, Michael, you referenced representation. What Brian was talking about in his reply was protection. And those are two amazingly different ideas, two amazingly different concepts. Under protection, you can say, hey, we're going to get this group of 15 white people plus one black person together, and there are going to be protections involved for black people. And here are those protections. Under representation, you would have some sense that black representation, brown representation, women would be represented. Southwest Virginia, other parts of Virginia would have representation on this commission. And that's where the problem is. I think you have witnessed in you know the last few decades changes in our politics, especially when it comes to black and brown communities. And I think what you're seeing from a new generation of politicians is that we don't just want protections from white people anymore. We want representation to sit at the table with you. That's what I'm hearing when I listen to the black and brown people that are involved in this process. That's what they're telling me, and that's what I'm fighting for for them. So I have to be honest, as a black woman, I first just want to say how grateful I am of how much of this conversation we have talked explicitly about race and whether or not black people and brown people are going to be represented or protected through this legislation. At the same time, as a black woman, I am keenly aware of the fact that people do not always vote by what is in the best interest of black and brown people. And so I'm wondering, for those who racial equity may not be top of their agenda, but they're still going to be casting in a vote, what are some of the other things they should be paying attention to as to why this legislation is in the best interest for them and their community as well? So the, I think as a, if, if people care about reform, the question is, how do we get to gold A-plus level redistricting reform? I give this commission about a B. I think with the enabling legislation, I'd give it a B-plus. We'll see if the House Democrats are willing to pass that. Um, and 
And and so how do we get more? And the problem is, is we got to go through our legislature to do it. And and they don't have the votes right now in the House Democratic Caucus to pass an independent commission that was only advisory. Because anything they're talking about that's legislation is is not – it could be independent, but it could be completely a suggestion from this commission. We did that in 2011. didn't work. Um, and and so the, the the long run is how do we take these steps to get to the ultimate goal? And I, it can't happen you – know, the, the fully independent commission can't happen until 2031. That's just not on the table. But if you – pass this amendment here, it structurally ends partisan gerrymandering. There's no way one side gets over on the other, and it destroys the proverbial smoky back room. So it does the two things that the party in power loves to hold on to the most. And from that platform, once we take that step, then I think getting the rest of it, not guaranteed, but is it puts us in a much better leverage position because it just gets rid of the two big carrots. And I think what's what's telling about this is and, and Michael, I don't know if you have a quote from, from Delegate Price in this from when she was presenting to Marcus Simon's subcommittee um, on P&E, but you know, she presented HB 1256, it was a, it, which is a kind of a similar to 1255, but it had a fully independent, albeit advisory only, commission. And, 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 and I think that it was pretty good. I would have structured a few things slightly differently, but a pretty, pretty good proposal. And she said that she did a substitute of the whole, and she substituted in this eight and eight structure that we have in the amendment before us. And I was floored that she did it. But what she said on the on on the in that subcommittee was, we don't have the votes to pass an independent commission through the House or the Senate. That wasn't 2011. That was February or or, or January of of this year, 2020. And I think that's true. We've got to have a couple more retirements and maybe some primaries before we have a Democrat majority that will give that through. Because I don't think the Republicans, on by and large, are really in favor of an independent commission. I'm going to ask one more question, and then we should probably wrap this up sometime soon. Although this has been a lot of fun. Um, Trevor, one of the things that's really noteworthy about this amendment is that supporters say this is finally an opportunity to end the longstanding practice of the party in power screwing the party out of power. And this is one of the main arguments in favor of the amendment, including by Alexandria's own Senator Adam Eben, who told me this. When this amendment passes, one party won't just dominate over the other every 10 years, and it'll allow uh, districts that um, make a bit more sense. Trevor, what would you say to Senator Eben and other people who want to end one party dominating over the other? I would say that, unfortunately, it's not always as easy as that. Um, In 2011, you had a House map that was racially gerrymandered by the House Republicans. But at that time, there was a Democratic majority in the state Senate that, you know, you and I today would think, well, surely that Democratic majority would have defeated that racial gerrymander. But they didn't. And the reason they didn't is because they had an agreement where the House Republicans could do what they want and the Senate Democrats could do what they want. But what the Senate Democrats did wasn't a partisan gerrymander. It was an incumbent gerrymander. They did it to protect those who were elected, both Democrats and Republicans. So it wasn't so much about screwing over the other party. It was about just protecting themselves. And when you look at 
supporters of Amendment 1, you sometimes see some of that old school incumbent protection ideas creep up. And I am afraid that this just makes it so much easier to do that by limiting the people to leadership, by making sure that there's not a lot of people involved, and by having very little transparency in the process. And so it's not, you know, I I get it. Partisan gerrymandering, that's what people talk about a lot of times. That's what happens in a lot of places. But in 2011, that was not what happened in the Virginia Senate. If you were going to direct people to maybe one resource they could read or listen to in order to learn more about this issue, where would you point them to? Trevor, we'll start with you. I would point them to FairDistricts.VA.com. And Brian? I guess I have to say fairmapsva.org. Um, you know, the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, Common Cause, Campaign Legal. There's lots of resources out there, and I encourage somebody to find folks to find experts on the matter. And I, I would definitely tell people you can look at those folks who are not on the ground here in Virginia, who do not understand what's happening in this Commonwealth, and you can see what they say. You can also simply go to the Twitter feeds of people like Delegate Marcia Price and Delegate Lashri Sayard, and you can see their pain for what they fear is coming and what is going to happen. And you can compare the two and decide how you want to vote. Asking delegates about this, they're the most self-interested people on the planet, right? Like, so don't listen to any elected leader in Virginia. Don't listen to any person who's paid like me to advocate for one side or another, no matter how sincerely any of us hold our beliefs. Look look to, you know, the League of Women Voters. Look to Common Cause. Look to folks that don't have a dog in the fight, but care about this in states that are red and states that are blue. And I think that's the way folks can get a good feel for this. Thank you for listening to On the Agenda, the podcast version of Agenda Alexandria. I'm Val Hawkins, chairman of Agenda Alexandria. Given the pandemic, we know that we won't be able to meet in person every month like we have for more than 20 years. That's why we're trying new ways to reach our members like this podcast. That brings me to my request for you. Please become a member of Agenda Alexandria. Just head over to agendaalexandria.com and look for the tab that says become a member. Thanks for listening.